are here in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We are in our last message in this book. We'll be looking at verses 9 to 14. After this series, uh, not next week, but the week after, I'll be going back to the Psalms. I'll spend uh, probably about four more months in the Psalms, going from Psalm 1 to uh, 16. And so we'll take a chunk out of there, and then we'll do another Old Testament book after that. I've yet to decide. So, but for tonight, we're going to finish off Ecclesiastes. So read with me verse 9 of chapter 12 down to the end. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and words of truth written uprightly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But in addition to this, my son, be warned. The making of many books is endless, and much devotion to books is wearying to the flesh. The end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this is the end of the matter for all mankind. For God will bring every work to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the the time that we have had in this book and um, all the wisdom contained therein, the the way you work through the life of Solomon and just um, towards the end in him writing this and and his observations on life itself and We've been confronted in many ways concerning the brevity of life, the nature of life, the purpose of life, the meaning of life, your design for human life. And as we finish this book and we uh, look at these uh, parting words of wisdom, help us to glean from them and to apply them to our own lives, that we would live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Throughout the history of human storytelling, you can find common similarities in narratives and plot lines. It's it's interesting that um, if you study literature or even uh, film or movies or stories in general, you see um, uh, the commonalities of plot lines that that usually, um, for most stories, there begins kind of everything's going all right, and then there's a trial or challenge and, and some problem, and then there's a, the, the characters are revealed in that, the antagonists, the protagonists, um, uh, the different uh, characters that will be in the story, and then there's the climax, and the problem solved, and then it goes down, and there's the conclusion. And uh, there you see this... Um, just a, a similar structure in many stories. And, and, and then there's different genres of stories, but nonetheless you find common ser- similarities in, in narratives and pop, plot lines. But likewise, you also see similarities in types of characters in stories. In, in all stories, there's common characters, uh, characters such as 
the warrior or the hero or the champion, the, the, the main um, uh, protagonist. And then there's a, another common character that you see, the, the comic relief or, or the poet or the artist or the muse. Um, and then there's uh, the, the comedian, the joker or the fool. And then we also see this, this other uh, character that's in almost every story, the sage or the philosopher um, or the wizard or the wise man. This is uh, the Yoda or the Gandalf or the Oracle. It's, it's in most stories, most uh, movies. And this is the one who has all of the answers to life's mysteries or at least knows how and where to find the answers. And this, in this story, this is Solomon, so to speak. Um, this is Solomon. This is, in a sense, how he uh, paints himself. As we come to this last part, it's, it's almost an autobiographical or a, a biography written in a third person. And the way it's written, um, some commentators, more liberal ones, would... Um, almost think that someone else wrote it, that they tacked it on to the end of Ecclesiastes, another inspired writer like a, another prophet. But there's no reason to think that it was anybody but Solomon himself. But just the way he writes it, he writes it almost in a third person speaking about himself um, as the wise man uh, or the preacher, as he would also talk about himself throughout the, the book. And in this conclusion to all of his writings in this book, which, as I've said uh, many times going throughout this series, that this is, in a sense, Solomon's repentance towards the end of his life. And, and this right here may be the last thing he ever wrote. And so he writes about himself in a third person, in a biographical style. And he writes about his endeavors and his conclusions as a wise man. And here in this passage, in this conclusion, as he writes about being a wise man, we will see here four characteristics of the wise or the wise man. And so that's how we'll look at this. That's how we'll look at this outline is four characteristics of the wise. And so as we go through this, we'll see the endeavors of the wise, the tools of the wise, the warnings of the wise, and then the end of the wise. First, the endeavors of the wise. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and words of truth written uprightly. This is the endeavors of the wise as he talks about himself, but not just about himself, but a wise man in general. This is what wise men do. They, they, wise men, uh, they, they teach wisdom. That's their, their main endeavor, is that wise men teach wisdom. That's what they do. And uh, not only as Solomon and all the, the Jewish tradition and rabbis, but in the Greco-Roman world, in, in every culture, there is a wise man. And when what they do is they teach wisdom. You go to them for wisdom. And we read that 
throughout all of Solomon's writings, not just in Proverbs, but here and in Song of Solomon's. And then even in uh, those passages uh, such as in 1 Kings or uh, 2 Chronicles, which, which speak about him. And there's this one passage in 1 Kings chapter 4, which kind of gives us a little bit more of a background of Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 29, it says this, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of understanding in his heart, like the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and the renown of his name was in all the surrounding nations." He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Here in, in, in this passage in 1 Kings 4, we see just the, the breadth of Solomon's wisdom. That he uh, surpassed, and because God gave it to him, God answered that prayer that he prayed originally, that God would give him wisdom so that he could lead his people. And God answered that prayer and gave him this great wisdom. And even here we see, and we don't really know to me, I, uh, Ethan the Ezraite is listed in other places in the Old Testament, but uh, nonetheless we see these other names of wise men that are listed Ethan, the Ezraite, Heman, Calcol, and Darda, and sons of Mahol. Um, you know, other wise men. That they would be um, almost uh, linked to uh, the same endeavors as, as Solomon was in seeking out uh, wisdom, teaching wisdom, compiling wisdom, composing wisdom, which is what Solomon did. And his breadth of wisdom was such that um, it contained, as here we read, all of nature. Trees and animals, birds and creeping things and fish. Even as we um, think of some of the Proverbs, that, uh, one that I think of often that I've um, sought to memorize and has helped me as a young man is, Go to the ant, old sluggard, and consider her ways and be wise. And, uh, you know, you... you think about that the ants are always and every time I see an ant I think of that and uh, don't be a sluggard <laughs> and so and there's several others like that because he he had that wisdom that he could look at the natural world and um, gather applications and he taught that he taught that there's a reason why he wrote proverbs to young men and young women, primarily for those who would be trained up in the administration to be rulers, uh, uh, princes, and nobles in the, the court in Israel, to be leaders. And that's his main endeavor as a wise man, and what other wise men do is he taught wisdom. But he also compiled wisdom. He didn't just teach wisdom, but he compiled it. As it says here, he pondered, he searched out and arranged many proverbs. He, he, he mused about wisdom, pondered it in his own mind as he considered uh, creation and considered life and considered na nature, uh, uh, but he also searched it out. He searched it out through the different uh, uh, 
kings and nobles who would come for trade and, and, and they would come to him for wisdom and certainly they would bring some wisdom as well and he searched it out in other places wherever he could find it and then he would arrange it. He compiled wisdom. He, he searched it out. He collected it. He put it together. He arranged it into in such a way that it, it would be um, comprehensive and, and uh, orderly and there is a sense that, um, you know, we, you can read, read the book of Proverbs, and there is somewhat of an order to it. Um, chapters 1 to 10 have somewhat of a narrative style, but then it's pithy Proverbs. But even the, the continuing chapters have somewhat of an order in, in the, the subject of the Proverbs as they're arranged together. So he, he, he not only taught wisdom, but he compiled it as well. He arranged it. Uh, Proverbs 15.23 says, To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season how good it is. And that was in a sense like one of his goals, to, so that uh, those who read the Proverbs could um, receive wisdom and be able to make an apt answer and to give a word in season. Finally, he composed wisdom. He, he didn't just teach it or compile it, but he composed it. The preacher, verse 10, says, The preacher sought to find delightful words and words of truth written uprightly. Uh, this this uh, is not just uh, true words, but um, the right word. You, you think of... Um, uh, you know, like in our language, English English is a is a big language in terms of word count. And uh, you know, you look at the, uh, thesaurus, and, and there's several types of words for one idea. And then this is what Solomon was doing: composing not not just the word that was accurate, but the right word for the right occasion. As he writes in Proverbs twenty five eleven, like apples of gold and settings of silver, is a word spoken in right circumstances. And you, you know that, that um, there's circumstances in life where you can answer correctly, but if you choose the wrong words, it won't have the best effect. There, there's there's uh, the perfect word for the perfect situation. And, and, and this is what Solomon um, sought to do, not only in teaching wisdom but in, in compiling it, but also composing it so that it would fit, almost like, poetry. In fact, uh, some of his uh, uh, literature, and there's a couple different genres of literature, um, actually more than a couple, but um, in terms of the Bible, uh, you would, uh, uh, many commentators, many theologians would um, characterize different genres of writing, such as narrative or um, wisdom literature or poetry, or uh, uh, prophetic literature. And there's a sense where Proverbs, both Proverbs and the Psalter, kind of sometimes um, overlap between uh, wisdom literature and poetry. And many of Solomon's uh, uh, Proverbs and many of his wisdom writing is composed in such a way that it is poetic. And I remember uh, John MacArthur has said this before, that um, poetry is one of, if not the highest, forms of art. 
Because if you, if you sculpt, you can craft something, you can craft an image, and you can make it beautiful. And, and there's different ways you can, I guess, um, define that image. And the same with painting or, or other forms of art, or, or even music. Music could be perceived uh, according to the tones in different ways. But when you compile words together into poetry and formulate them into poetry, there's, there's only uh, uh, certain meanings that you can draw from it. So, so it's, a, it's a bit more specific than, say, um, uh, crafting uh, a sculpture or painting a picture. And so that, that's why John MacArthur had said that it's, it's probably the highest form of art because it, it takes more thought and it has more meaning behind it. it it's specific. You know, there's a sense that, um, you know, it made me think of, um, of dining and food for some, some reason. Um, you know, you can, and I, I've experienced this before, especially in the military, where um, they had decided they would um, give us a special meal. And the food was good. It, you know, there's times where, hey, we're going to have steak and crab legs. But, you know, there, it's not... Uh, you know, it's not fine dining in terms of the ambiance or how it's, it's like, here's, it's a good steak and here's some crab legs, but we're putting it on a paper plate and you get plastic utensils and you better hurry up and, you know, you eat it on the hood of a Humvee, but, you know, it tastes good and it's good food, but, you know, there is a difference uh, between having good food in that setting versus going to, uh, fine dining and you have the ambiance and you have the table setting and the, the music and everything to complement the meal. And this is what, in a sense, poetry is to literature. It, it, it's putting it all together, composing it, compiling it. And this it was the, the endeavor of the wise and of Solomon, that he not only sought wisdom to teach it and, to, and then to com compile it, but also to compose it. So it, it, it's like art. I like what Michael Eaton wrote in his commentary. He said, the preacher's skill at his task is set before us in three verbs, pondered, searched out, arranged. The first literally meaning weighed points to careful evaluation, indicating his honesty, caution, and balance. The second to thoroughness and diligence. The third arrange points to the skillful orderliness of his presentation and reminds us that there is an artistic element in his work. He realized that pleasing words, literally words of delight, have a penetrating effect that slapdash and ill-considered words lack. Second, his words are written uprightly. The two characteristics balance each other out. And so his words were, were not just correct, were not just true, were not just wise, but they were composed together in such a way that there was an art form to it, that they were memorable. That was not only his goal, but the goal of many of the wise men in his time and, and even in the Greco-Roman world, which brings us to the second characteristic of the wise, um, we see the endeavors of the wise, and, and now we see the tools of the wise. Verse 11, the words of wise men are like goads 
and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. These are the tools of the wise. Words. Words. Uh, you know, um, you think of any craftsman or, or any um, a person with a certain career. Uh, you think of a carpenter has their tool belt and their certain um, tools. And, uh, you know... Um, Growing up, I, I, like most men, you do uh, construction either for a job or either helping somebody out and you, you learn to hammer nails. Um, but you also learn if you're around carpenters that carpenters don't just have a hammer. They have a special carpenter hammer. And, and there's a difference between just a regular old hammer and a really good carpenter's hammer. And the same is true for, for any other uh, uh, craftsman, whether that would be a mechanic or a mason or an electrician. You have certain tools and you have specialized tools. And the same is true for doctors and dentists and, and even those that are, um, work behind a computer or, do, um, so, or even, even teachers, per se. They have tools. Every career person has tools. But for the wise man, uh, his tools are words, are words. And, and, and I remember um, going through seminary, and my Hebrew professor told us, uh, he said, if you're going to be a man of the word, you need to be a man of words, meaning you need to understand words, you need to understand how they work, you need to understand grammar. You don't have to be a grammarian, per se, or a linguist, per se, but you need to understand words and functions of speech, and you need to understand language, because that's, those are your tools. And just as those are the tools for the preacher, those are the tools of the wise, their words. And as Solomon writes, he says, the words of wise men are like goads. Like goads, and most of us here, we probably know what goads are referring to, but um, some of us may have never seen a goad. Um, and goads are prods, they're, they're cattle prods. Um, nowadays, they have electric ones, but back in the ancient time, and they're probably still used today, the, the goad was a stick and uh, with a sharp pointed end that was either uh, sharpened into a fork or there would be nails put into it. And so you could prod an animal. Um, you think of a stubborn ox that you can't just push an ox in the right direction. It's too big. And so you have to get a prod and, and stick them in that right spot where it hits a nerve and gets him moving in the, uh, towards the bottom of his leg or whatever animal. You, you prod him along in the right direction. And this is well, one function of the words of the wise men, they, they prod you into the right direction in life. They, they convict you, they confront you, they compel you to go in the right direction. This is the tools of the wise man, that they, they choose their words wisely so that they have an effect to prod you, to poke you, to direct you. So we see the the tools of the wise in, in their words, and second, in their employment of words. It, it's not just the well-chosen words, but how they employ them as well. And as Solomon says in, in verse 11, the words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. 
like well-driven nails, meaning they stick, they stay in place. They're, they're driven there and they're hard to move. They're hard to remove. They're, they're memorable. You remember them. Their words and the meaning of them, they stick in place. They're not easily removed. I, 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 think, it was, um, I think it was in The Karate Kid. Whereas Mr. Miyagi was teaching him how to hammer nails and he's like tap, tap, and then bam! And you just had to drive it in. And if, if you ever seen uh, uh, some carpenters can do that, some people can just set the nail, just tap it, and then bam, just slam it down. Uh, I mean, nowadays we have nail guns that do the same thing, but nonetheless, you get the point that that's a well-driven nail and you can't, you know, it, it's hard to take out. You almost have to dig around it to remove it. And then even then, it's hard to remove. This is how the wise men employs their words, that they're memorable, they stick, they're, they're not easily forgotten, and they prod you in the right direction. You remember them. Um, there also, there's also this sense of, um, as many commentators would say, this could mean, uh, say, a, a peg, uh, like a tent peg or a, a, a peg in the wall. To, to hang something on, or as uh, others preachers have said, to hang a thought on. Something that you can hang a thought on. And so we see the tools of the wise in their words, their employment of the words. And third, in the power of their words. As Solomon says, they are given by one shepherd. It's not just that these words are well chosen so that they... They prod you and they poke you in the right direction and they're employed in such a way that they're memorable, but that ultimately they come from God. As all wisdom, all knowledge, uh, it finds its origin in God himself. They come from one shepherd. And, and these words of the wise men, because all wisdom is from God, they come from God because God is a speaking God. He's, he's not silent. As there's been, uh, uh, Francis Schaeffer, I believe, the, the title of his, one of his famous books. He is there and he is not silent. He's not silent. Uh, the heavens are declaring the knowledge of God. Uh, God spoke all of creation into existence with a word. Spoke everything, everything that we see into existence. He is a speaking God. And everything that he says is wisdom, and there is depth in wisdom, and, and he speaks through men. That's how Scripture came to us. We think as, as Paul you know, unpacks the depth of the gospel and the implications and applications of the gospel and, and just everything that God is doing in the history of redemption as he writes the book of Romans. He says at the end of Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And this, this wisdom, the wisdom of God, is imparted to men uh, who have spoken from God, the prophets and the apostles, and have been carried along by the, by the Spirit to write Scripture. And they come from one shepherd. And there, there's... It's interesting that even um, there's instances uh, recorded in Scripture of 
men who weren't exactly um, the, the most righteous, and, and yet God has spoken through them. And ultimately, all wisdom comes from God. And so we see the endeavors of the wise, we see the tools of the wise, and then the third characteristics of the wise, which we find in this passage, are the warnings of the wise. The warnings of the wise. As Solomon goes on, he says, But in addition to this, my son, be warned. Be warned. He's speaking about the endeavors of the wise and, and teaching as a wise man and the tools of the wise, uh, the words they're using. And then he says, in addition to this, uh, be warned. The making of many books is endless and much devotion to books is wearying to the flesh. It's interesting. He's talking about all the things he did as a wise man and, and almost... Um, in a sense, comparing himself to other wise men who, who teach knowledge and, and ponder and search out and arrange many proverbs and, and seek to compile and compose wisdom in such a way that it's, it's memorable and it's useful and it's impactful. And, and then he, he talks about what, what the power of words and the tools of the wise men, that they are like goads and they're like well-driven nails, but ultimately they're from one shepherd. But then he, he says, be warned though. Even though wisdom is to be sought out, and as he says in Proverbs, uh, get wisdom. And the, the first uh, uh, thing in getting wisdom is, is, the first act of wisdom is to acquire it. To, to understand the worth of it, the value of it. And yet he gives this warning. The warnings of the wise is that human reasoning has no end. Human reasoning has no end. That's the first warning that the making of many books is endless. There will always be more books. There will always be more teachings, more ideologies. Uh, there will always be uh, wise men and teachers and philosophers and scientists and people searching out wisdom, searching out the answers to life and the riddles of life and the mysteries of life, whether it be in the creative order or in philosophies and the ultimate meanings of life. There will always be more books and more teachings and more ideologies. There will, human reasoning has no end. And it has no end because man is unable to figure everything out. And yet, at the same time, man is too prideful to stop trying. He's not humble enough to uh, trust in God's wisdom and to seek God's wisdom. But mankind in general will continue to make more books and more teachings and more ideologies. And, and it's endless. It's endless because human reasoning has no end because uh, we lack wisdom. We lack uh, complete knowledge. We, in a sense, uh, though we're made in the image of God, we are not God. And yet we, in our sinfulness, try to be God and try to uh, uh, just grasp all of uh, creation and our lives and, and, and tie up all the loose ends and, and, and wrap it all up so that we understand it. But human reasoning has no end. And the second warning he gives is human learning has no end. He says the making of many books is endless. And then he says, and much devotion to books is wearing to the flesh. His first warning is that human reasoning has no end. And then the second warning is that human learning has no end. 
He says to his readers that you will wear yourself out trying to learn it all or figure out all the mysteries of life. You'll, you'll wear yourself out. You cannot lock yourself up into a library and, and, and figure it out. And, um, you know, we, we think of uh, many of those uh, either ancient or old libraries. You, you, hear those, you see those pictures of places like Oxford or Cambridge or where they have those um, just nice uh, wooden, um, it's just beautiful and just ends, endless rows, it seems, of books and books and books and books and there's no way to learn it all. And, and yet man will continue to write more books. And, and, and even now we live in the internet age and, and you can find so much, and I mean, information is everywhere. And you will wear yourself out trying to learn it all. And, and there is a sense also that the more you learn, the more you understand um, how much left you have to learn and uh, how, how, much, how, how little you actually know. Human learning has no end. And this is, this is not only true in this life, but throughout all eternity. Those who are in Christ and who are born again and who have a hope of heaven, when we finally get to heaven, we will continue to learn about God and about his wisdom and his greatness and his glory and all his perfections. Man is limited in his understanding, in his abilities to learn, and in his capacity to hold all of the information in creation. Human learning has no end. We can't learn it all. We can't know it all. And even if we had the abilities, the mental abilities, so to speak, um, we couldn't hold it all. We couldn't contain it all in our minds. We're, we're limited. So give it up, smarty pants. <laughs> give it up. The nerds will not get their revenge. <laughs> it's, you're limited. You're limited in your capacity and in your ability. I like what one commentator wrote. He said, books written on any other subject than God's revealed wisdom will only proliferate the uselessness of man's thinking. All wisdom comes from God. And everything is contained within God. He knows all things and he, uh, he controls all things. And we are limited. And this is, you know, a, a main um, point throughout uh, most of the book of Ecclesiastes, that we are confronted with our, in a sense, our insignificance, our inability to find fulfillment in this life, and, and just how, uh, you know, how limited we are, how small we are, how, how little we are. And, and there is a sense where, um, on the surface level, that's somewhat despairing and depressing, but there's also a sense when we grasp it, it's liberating. Because then we're able to rest in the knowledge and the provision and the greatness and the glory of God. And I think that's, that's uh, one of Solomon's main objectives. So here in this conclusion, we've seen the endeavors of the wise, the tools of the wise, the warnings of the wise... And then the final characteristic of the wise, the end of the wise, verses 13 to 14. The end of the matter, all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this is the end of the matter for all mankind, for God will bring every work to judgment 
everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. This is the end of the wise. No matter how wise you are, how matter, no matter how much you find out, no matter if you truly find out the meaning and purpose of life or, um, and, and even the right meaning, the end of the wise is that you have an end. You will end. And so we see this, that, that after that end, it comes judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes judgment. And so Solomon wraps it up. We see the end of the wise and the end of their ponderings, the end of all mankind, and then the end of every act. The end of their ponderings is that as Solomon comes to the end of his ponderings, the end of the matter, meaning the end of uh, the, the conclusion of everything that I've ever learned, ever understood, ever observed, is to fear God and keep his commandments. This is, what, uh, this is the bottom line. This is the bottom line. Or as uh, I learned in the military, uh, the bottom line up front. This was a military writing style. And, and it really almost hurt me in a sense because I spent uh, you know, several years uh, getting this drilled into me, uh, bottom line up front, give me the concise statement, give me the, the, the bottom line, just the main thing. I don't want flowery fluff. I, I just want the main thing. And so, you know, condense it. Get, it. get down to the most important thing, the most important facts, and then give it to me. And then I get into seminary, and they're like, no, you, you need to expound upon this. You need to expound. And I'm like, I could answer this. I could write this in like three sentences. And they're like, no, you need 20 pages. <laughs> and so I had to flip that around. But this is what Solomon does. He condenses it all, bottom line up front, fear God and keep his commandments. That's it. That's, in a sense, the meaning to life, the purpose of life, why you exist, uh, how to live a good life, how to live a fulfilling life, fear God and keep his commandments. Or, as we know, that famous hymn, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. That's it. That's it. That's, that's the answer. That's the meaning of life. You know, you can uh, broadcast it to the world. This is, we found it. This is the meaning of life. Uh, you know, there's, there's many... People, you've probably heard this either in the workplace, amongst friends, um, in sitcoms, in movies, uh, uh, unbelievers, and people in the secular world just joking, um, but also wanting to know what's the meaning of life. And, and I can tell you, <laughs> it's right here. Fear God and keep his commandments. Oh, no, 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 no. There must, be, there must be something else besides that. No, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the meaning of life. There you have it. Go do it. That's it. And why? Because of the end. Because of the end of the matter. For God will bring every work into judgment every act into judgment the end of all mankind is judgment you will be judged you will be judged whether you know you are in Christ or you're outside of Christ but whatever the fact whatever the the case is you will be judged there is a judgment and we you know as believers we 
think of judgment mostly in terms of hell. And that's right because we want to evangelize and we want to um, uh, warn people about the judgment of hell. But um, sometimes we forget that there's a judgment for us as well. Even though that... that even though for those of us who are in Christ, that, that punishment for our sins has been uh, dealt with by Jesus Christ himself, that he bore that punishment for us, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We understand that. We place our hope in that. We live in light of that. But that doesn't negate the fact that um, we will be judged as well. We will be judged for how we have stewarded uh, his gifts and resources, for how we have been faithful, for how we have responded to his grace. As Jesus says, uh, said, um, um, he who is, uh, who is uh, he, whoever is faithful, uh, whoever is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Even Paul would uh, repeat this concept. Um, being a steward and, and stewarding his gifts um, in light of the rewards. As he, he tells the, the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, you can turn there, it, it, as he's, he's talking about his ministry and he's explaining uh, why he does what he does and why he preaches the way he preaches and why he ministers the way he ministers and, and ultimately why he lives the way he lives. Because in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 10, he says this, According to the grace of God which was given to me, because God has poured out his grace upon me and saved me, and not only saved me, but given me these giftings which I am to employ, he says, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on it. Speaking of gospel, of proclaiming the gospel. And he goes on, he says, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will indicate it because it is revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. He's speaking about the, the judgment to believers and particularly to ministers and how they minister and whether or not they minister with worldly wisdom or with uh, scripture, with faithfulness to the Bible, and whether they build with gold and silver, the gold and silver and precious stones of scripture and biblical wisdom, or the wood, hay, and stubble of worldly wisdom. And they will be judged accordingly. Though they will be saved, they will lose rewards depending on how they um, have ministered. And then even in the next chapter, First Corinthians four, he says this as the um, as the Corinthians have, in a sense, uh, believed lies about Paul and and his other fellow disciples, and he's in a sense defending himself. He says this in First Corinthians four. He says, "Let a man consider us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
In this case, moreover, is required of stewards that one be found faithful. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and make manifest the motives of the hearts. And then each one's praise will come to him from God. In both these passages and in other places, as I said about Jesus, that there is a judgment for believers. There is a judgment for how we have stewarded his resources of our time, our talents, our treasure, our, the, the money that he has given us, the, the opportunities that he has given us, the relationships he has given us, the spiritual giftings, how we have employed them. We will be judged. We will be judged accordingly. And it's not so much as a punitive judgment, but it's a loss of rewards. It's a loss of eternal rewards that we'll see them being burnt up. And even as Paul points to, it's not just how we have used the things, but it's the motives behind it as well. And so sometimes, you know, you can see people doing great works and and maybe you don't see their motives, and maybe their motives are wrong. And, and you know, you can look at your own life, and you can see, um, you know, perhaps I, I know for for my my sake, I, I know of several times where I've done service or I've given, but it was with the wrong motive. And I don't know. Ultimately, it'll be the Lord who judges. And so, in the end, when you know. We get to heaven, we'll see what gets burnt up and what remains. But nonetheless, we will be judged. We will be judged whether we are in Christ or whether we are outside of Christ. But whatever the case may be, there is a judgment. And we are to live in light of that judgment. As a pointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment. And Solomon points to that. That it doesn't matter how wise you are, how learned you are, you will be judged. So fear God and keep his commandments because that's the end of the wise, that's the end of all mankind. And then he gets the, the end of every act because he says, for God will bring every work to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil, every act. And, and even Jesus himself would somewhat elaborate on this as, as Jesus, um, not in just this aspect, but unpacked um, the true meaning of the law for all the Jews, that, that God will bring every, every act into judgment, and he will judge all actions, whether it's, it's thought, word, deed, or even inaction. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, he, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he's talking about judging a tree by the fruit that it bears, and he says, he says, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for, for in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. He says every, every careless word, and you know, we think about being judged by our words and, and sort of those, those sins of the tongue, the, 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 the hatred, reviling, or slander, or lying. But there's also a sense of, of gossip or um, rudeness or being unkind or um, 
not saying what we should when we ought to say something. Even, even James himself, you know, he points this out in James 4.17. He says, therefore, to one who knows to do the right thing and does not do it, to him it is sin. And right there in James 4.17, we get this other category of sin, that this category of those sins of omission. You know, we're, we're, we, we sometimes look at sin in, in terms of the sins of commission, those, those sinful things we commit, those acts of transgression against a, a clear law, like a do not steal or do not lie, and then we steal or we lie. But the sins of omission are those things like, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we say, no, I won't. Or love your neighbor as yourself, and we say, no, I won't. Or uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and we say, no, I'm not going to do that. The sins of omission. And God will bring those into judgment. And then he'll also bring everything hidden or known, good or evil. As we read in Hebrews 4.12, says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And speaking primarily of the word, what the word of God does as we read it and it exposes us, it exposes our, the thoughts and intentions of our heart, but also God himself will expose the thoughts and intentions of our heart in the day of judgment. Is the, the author of Hebrews says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. That we will give an account. All people, those outside of Christ, those inside of Christ, in Christ, believer, unbeliever, uh, wise or fool, young or old, we will all stand before God and we will all give an account. So the end of the matter is to fear God and keep his commandments because he's going to bring every act into judgment. And it's interesting. uh, I remember uh, just prior to coming to faith and there is a sense that um, I look back and I think I even saw it in those days, um, a growing sense of conviction. But it was also a time in my life in which I was uh, trying to figure out life, so to speak, in my late 20s, and I was going to school and, and uh, still trying to figure out that career path. And I ended up on deciding to learn how to make money, to get rich, because I figured, well, I don't know exactly what I want to do in terms of the actual career itself, but I know I need money, and so uh, I, maybe I'll just make a lot of money, and then I'll be able to do whatever I want. And I remember um, in college, and, and someone asked me, and these words actually came out of my mouth. Uh, I'm somewhat ashamed to say it, but someone asked me, so what, what are you going to do? It was uh, uh, another military officer who was like, what are you studying? What are you gonna? And I explained, well, I'm trying to be an entrepreneur. And he's like, well, what are you going to sell? What are you gonna? And I said, you know, I just want to do whatever I want with whomever I want, wherever I want. That's, that's just all I want to do. And that was really just the heart of an unbeliever. To be autonomous. To live according to their own law, their own ways. To be the captain of their own ship. To be 
God themselves, in a sense, to be autonomous, autonomous from all the rules of this world and ultimately autonomous from God. And every unbeliever has to come to this point before they come to the cross, before they come to faith, that you are not God. You're not in control of your life. You're not in control of your destiny. You, can't, you don't get to chart your own path. Yes, you do make decisions and you do make plans and you will be uh, judged accordingly and you will bear the consequences of your decisions and your plans and all your actions. But nonetheless, you are responsible and you are accountable to God because He is your creator and the reason why you exist is to fear Him and keep His commandments and obey Him and worship Him. And if you do that, then you will live a fulfilled life. You will live according to your, the purpose for which you have been created. That is the bottom line up front. Fear God and keep his commandments. That is the meaning of life. That is the purpose of life. That is the reason for why you were created, why you exist. And if you just do that, you will live a happy, fulfilled life because God will guide you wherever he wants you to go and you will be obedient and you will be blessed. Fear him and keep his commandments commandments I like how Dr. Will Varner he ends um, in his commentary on this book and he says this as he concludes he says this the final message of this book is that God alone can put the pieces of life together into a meaningful whole only God can put all the pieces, all the strands, all the mysteries of life together and the meaning into one meaningful whole. He says, no statement elsewhere in the book can be interpreted as a final conclusion if it contradicts this statement at the end of the book. Fear God, keep his commandments, because he will bring every act into judgment. Heavenly Father, please help us to heed these warnings, whether believer or unbeliever, and especially for those unbelievers in our midst or who will listen to this message, please drive this truth home to them that there is a judgment, that you will bring every act into judgment, every careless word, every uh, unkind thing, the hidden things, the secret things which people think that no one else sees, you see. So please pierce the hearts of the unbelievers who are here in our midst or who will be listening to this, that they would be convicted of the judgment to come, that they would repent, they would seek you while you may be found, that they would call upon you while you are near, and that they would trust you so that they would fear you and keep your commandments. And for those of us who are in Christ, Lord, remind us that even though Christ has bore the punishment for our sins, even though we are in him and we have the hope of eternal life and the hope of heaven, we will still be held accountable for the gifts that you have given us and how we use them, how we steward those resources, because all things come from your hand and, and we will be judged uh, according to how we spend our lives here on earth and whether... We spend your good gifts and the time that you have given us for ourselves or for you. And even the attitude in which we go about our lives. Lord, please guide us, give us wisdom, direct us, help us to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.